Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John. When my wife was expecting for the second time, we went for one of those pregnancy well checks, and the doctor shocked us, shocked me at least, by saying, I'd like you to go have an ultrasound to rule out the possibility of twins. And I thought, well, I'd like to have that ultrasound too. Uh, So we went and had the ultrasound, but it did not rule out the possibility of twins. It ruled in the possibility of twins. And we told our two-year-old son, Mama's going to have two babies, and Daddy's going to have a cow. (laughs) Lord, how do you respond to that? We figured, though, in retrospect, that God fulfilled both of our desires. She had always thought of having three children. I had always kind of thought of having two children for, you know, whatever those reasons are. You think those things don't make much sense anyway. So we sort of got it both ways. We got two, three kids in two births. We got all together in one. In John chapter 6, Jesus is going to teach us a pair of truths, which are twins, That is, they go together. They're interrelated. We've got to have them both. We've got to know them both if we're going to understand each of them. John chapter 6, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day." And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The first verse that we read here was the tail end of of last week's passage and last week's sermon, the idea that, that Jesus clearly said, look, I am here to provide what you need spiritually. And verse 36, though, tells us how these people responded. He says, but I said to you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. And so he goes on now to talk about the reality of of his offer and their response and how that's going to play out. And what we have to understand today is that Jesus is going to talk about the sovereignty of God in our salvation. Now, the, the word sovereignty, obviously from the word sovereign, it, it means somebody who is a supreme ruler, like a monarch or a king, if you will. They don't answer to anyone in their realm of authority. And if we were to spend the time, we could look at the broad concept of sovereignty in the scriptures, which is very simply that God is the king of the world. Uh, he does own the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He, he is the the creator, the owner, the maintainer, the Lord of the earth. And so we say he is sovereign. And that sovereignty, what we're going to understand today from this passage, that sovereignty of God extends to our salvation. Your salvation was not an accident. 
It was very purposeful on God's part. And so first of all, we need to understand about salvation, that God offers salvation freely. Look at verse 37, if you will. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And then in verse 40, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. Salvation is offered freely to all people. This is perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. I'd like you to read it with me if you would. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation is offered to the whoever of the world. Salvation is offered. Jesus said in verse 35, I, have, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who, comes to, who believes will never thirst. He says, here I am. He's offering himself. It's a free offer. That word whoever shows up again in Romans 10.13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus says, him who comes to me I will not cast out. Whoever, if you're here today and you've never come into relationship with God by putting faith in Christ as your Savior, that verse is for you. We could read both of these verses this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that Dave Lunsford, that if Dave Lunsford believes in him, he will not perish. You could put your name in there. Whoever, salvation is offered freely. It's a wonderful, wonderful blessing of God. The one who comes to me I will not cast out. One of the organizations that I was part of that was a volunteer organization, which will go nameless to keep them from being defamed, many years ago, they had a, they had a, very, uh, a very strict uh, membership policy. It was by invitation only. Now that was, I think, illegal, and uh, probably, I know it's illegal today, but they didn't advertise that. It was just what I observed. When I got invited to be part of it, they said, would you like to be part of this? And I said, sure. And while I was there several times, people would come in and say, hey, I'd like to be part of this. I'd like to volunteer. And they said, great, well, uh, write down your name and your driver's license number and, and we'll get back to you. And they would take that piece of paper with that name and that driver's license, and they had a special little hook in the, in the dispatch room, and they would stick that on that hook, and that's where it stayed forever and ever. And if you weren't just a certain kind of person, whatever it is, I don't know. I don't know why I got in, and other people didn't get in. They, it was a very selective process. They didn't care about your background or anything else. It was just arbitrary, I guess, if they knew you or didn't know you. I got great news. Salvation isn't that way. Jesus says, if you come, he will save you. If you come, him who comes to me, I will not cast out. You don't have to come crawling on your knees to the altar and go, oh God, oh God, oh God, and hope that somehow you're good enough for him to accept. No way. The great old hymn says, just as I am, I come. And the great truth is, just as you are, God accepts you. God offers salvation freely. 
He offers it freely to all people. And not only does he, does he offer it freely to all people, but salvation is a free gift. He talks here about belief. Him who comes to me and him who believes, I will not cast out. He doesn't say you have to do a bunch of things. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. It is God's intention to give you salvation when you will put faith in him. Verse 40 of John 6, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes may have everlasting life. This word, and, and what you see here is, is two words. You need, he says, those who see me and believe. Now, he's not teaching a two-step process of salvation, as though first of all you have to do this, then second of all you have to do that. There are some religions that teach that. There's a whole series of steps in salvation. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, it's not enough to see me without believing. Go back up to verse 36. Look what he says to these people. You have seen me, and yet you don't believe. And that goes back perhaps also to verse 26. Most assuredly, I say to you, you are seeking me now. You are coming after me now, not because you saw the signs, that is the miracles which prove I am the Son of God, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Here were people physically following Jesus, getting in a boat and coming across the lake so they can continue to be with him. And he says, that's not enough. It's not enough for you to come to church. It's not enough for you to read the Bible. It's not enough for you to put your money in the offering. Maybe you looked at that missionary brochure and you thought, wow, I'm going to give a big old gift to God. But if you haven't given your heart to God, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, you're not on your way to heaven. It's not enough to see Jesus, to know about Jesus, to be around his people. You have to come to faith in Christ the great news is, if you will come to faith, Jesus won't cast you out. Hebrews 4.2 says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit or benefit them because it was not mixed with faith. It's not enough even to come and hear preaching. Listen to preaching all day long. No, you've got to come to faith yourself. Salvation is offered freely, and it is a free gift that requires us to put faith in Christ. The tough truth that we see here, though, is this. Mankind is incapable on his own of receiving this gift. Verse 36, he says, You have seen me, and yet you do not believe. One author, in commenting on this, put it this way. Even the sight of Christ in the flesh and the beholding of his wondrous miracles did not bring men to believe on him. Oh, the depravity of the human heart, the author said. Now, how many times have you beat yourself up and said, oh man, if I could just share the gospel better, I know more people would get saved. 
How many times have you looked around here? Maybe, 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 you know, maybe praise the Lord you came to church, thought, oh, that was a great message. It really touched on the gospel. I wish somebody, this certain person was here to hear it. As though it's, that's just the thing that's going to turn their heart. No, the sad truth is, in and of ourselves, we will not come to Christ. Jesus said this, but I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, they bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you would not believe. Jesus says, look, I've done all of these great miracles, but you won't believe. Now, Picture this, folks. You, you really have to get your mind around it. It's a challenging thing. If Jesus, if we advertised in, in the Ferndale paper, Jesus is going to be preaching this Sunday. Jesus in the flesh. He's going to be right here in our pulpit. We would think, oh man, people are going to get saved today. And I would expect somebody would. But there would be people walk out the door that you invited, having turned their back on Jesus, and you'd say, what in the world is wrong with them? And you've said it many times about many people. I look at, I look at the free gift of salvation and I think, what is wrong with you? This is a free gift. It's going to change your life now. It's going to guarantee your life in eternity the problem is mankind is not capable on his own. Look again at verse 36. This should have been a no-brainer. I said that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Back up just a little bit. Um, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. They knew he was talking about himself. Therefore they said to him, what sign, what miracle will you perform that we may see it and believe? Or what work do you do? And I'm sure Jesus was going, hello, were you, you were just sitting there a minute ago when I fed 5,000 people out of a little boy's lunch. Why didn't they believe? The reason they didn't believe is that mankind has a fundamental flaw. Mankind has a fundamental flaw, and this scripture talks about it. The natural man, that is the man who has not come into relationship with God, the man who does not have the Spirit of God in him, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Ephesians 2.1 puts it this way, You he has made alive who were, before you came to Christ, you were dead in trespasses and sin. If you were there in Capernaum and you ate those loaves and fishes, would you have believed? Oh, absolutely. Really? How many of you have been Christians, let's say, since you were four years old? Okay. Why didn't you believe earlier, the rest of you? Why was your heart so hard? Pretty simple, plain stuff, isn't it? Would you have believed that day in Capernaum? 
Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. It's, but it's hard for us to grasp Jesus in the flesh doing a miracle, teaching, and people not believing. The great news is God overcomes our inability to believe. This is the heart of this text today in John 6. Look at verse 37. In fact, we need to start at verse 36 because you need to get the flow. Jesus says to these people, I said to you that you've seen me and yet you do not believe, but all that the Father gives me will come to me. Who is the one that's going to come? It's the ones the Father gives to Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven to do, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, verse 39, that of all he has given, all the people he gave to me, of all of those that I should lose nothing. God overcomes our inability to believe, first of all, by deciding to save some. If you want the the theological word that goes with this, it's the doctrine of election. It's not election like God casting votes in heaven. It's, It's better the word choosing. God made a choice. God has decided to save some. But as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born or born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The reason you came to faith in Christ was because God decided that you would come to that faith. It was God's will, not your will. Now, I know you're sitting there, some of you going, well, I... You know, I thought I made a decision. In fact, I remember you saying a few times from that pulpit, you've got to make a decision. That is absolutely right. You do have to make a decision. But the work of God starts with God in you, and it culminates with your decision. God has decided to save some. He has decided to overcome mankind's inability For whom he foreknew, that is, knew ahead of time, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, in whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a whole theological package about salvation, but he says, God, ahead of time, said, Dave Lunsford's going to come to faith in me, and Sue Lunsford, and Don Hammonds, and Scott Hubbard, and right down the line to every single one of you that has come to faith in Christ, God said, this person's going to come to me. And there's probably some of you sitting here today who have not yet come to faith in Christ. And part of the reason you're here is God has decided to give you an opportunity to come to faith. He has decided you will come to faith. God has decided to save some by causing some to hear the truth. These are familiar words, words from Romans 10. How, shall, how then shall they call on him um, whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in, in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Do you know what one of the merciful things that God does to help you come to Christ? The simplest thing is he sends a preacher to you. 
Now, not a preacher like this, dressed in a suit, getting a paycheck, but just somebody, anybody who will present the truth to you. It might have been a professional preacher. It might have been your neighbor. It might have been your coworker. Why was I born into a Christian family? My mother was not born into a Christian family. I was born into a Christian family because God decided that he would expose me to his truth at a young age. Why did you move next door to that religious fanatic that witnessed to you? Was that an accident? I think not. Why was your coworker a believer? Why are you sitting in church today? It's not an accident. God has decided that he wanted you to hear his truth. This is how God overcomes our inability to believe. And number three, he overcomes our inability to believe by removing the blindness of sin from some. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to listen to the things spoken by Paul. I think this probably is the very, is the very core of what God does to save us. Because maybe you had many exposures to the gospel but still didn't quite believe. And at some point, God opened your heart to the things of the gospel. For it is the God who has commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God does a work in the heart. The miracle of salvation is this, and it never ceases to amaze me. In fact, it amazes me more as our country gets farther away from the Lord that I can preach the truth, whether in my office or somewhere else or in this pulpit, that I can share the truth and God can knock on your heart's door and at some point you will say, yes, I believe. Because it is an issue of faith. It is not an issue of scientific fact. And it is a minority belief system. And yet, all I have to do is preach God's truth and God is knocking on heart's door. Some of you here today, God is knocking on your heart door. There is a, there is a sense inside you, this is the truth. Yes, I've heard the truth. Yes, I need to respond. That's what God calls the conviction of sin and righteousness. The Holy Spirit does that inside you. I can't do that. I am not the one who convicts of sin. I might present some of God's truth that, that helps with that, but it's God who does it through his truth. God removes the blindness of sin from some. Ephesians 2 puts it this way, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Isn't God great? God opens our minds. He opens our hearts. And he causes us to come to salvation. Now the next thing that Jesus talks about, the twin truth here that is based on this sovereignty of God in our salvation is our security. Look at verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose only a handful? 
The only ones I'm going to lose are those that are really stubborn and really won't repent. No, he says, of all the ones the Father gives me, I will lose nothing. The the basis of our salvation is God's decision to save us. It is so important to understand when you're considering, am I secure? Am I going to stay with Christ? Might I fall away? Might I sin so much that he'll cast me out? The answer is no, because first of all, your salvation was not based on your ability to scrub your life and to do good deeds and to be good enough and to jump into God's hands. Your salvation was based in the will of God where he reached down and said, I'm going to open his mind, I'm going to open his heart, and he's going to come to faith. God made a decision and you came to faith in Christ. And because of that, it's up to God whether or not you make it all the way. And the truth that we see here is that the completion of our salvation is based in the work of Christ. Jesus says, I will not lose anyone that God has given me. I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 40 says, This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. How does Christ make sure we stay saved? What is the work of Christ for us that gives us security? First of all, the work is this. Christ prays for us. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus prays for you. We can't even understand why God wants to hear our prayers. But Jesus prays for you. Listen to this. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, or Peter, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. What does that verse 32 clearly imply? That Peter is going to have a significant failure. But he says, when you come back to me. See, Jesus already knew Peter was going to deny him. But he said, I have made sure that Satan will not have his way with you. That you will be protected. And when you get past that great difficulty you're going to have, then you get out there and serve my sheep. Isn't that marvelous? Jesus prays for us. Listen to these words from John 17. Jesus spoke these words and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that you should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, for unsaved people, but I pray for those to whom you have given me, for they are yours. I kept, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And that's talking about Judas. It was not God's will that Judas be saved. He let Judas go on his own sinful path. Jesus prays for us. You're not even aware of it. You don't even need to ask for it. 
He's praying for you. He knows what Satan wants to do to you. You go back and read the first chapter of Job and see how Job wants to, or how Satan wanted to tear apart Job and ruin his faith. And God controlled Satan's access to Job. And Jesus is praying for the same thing for you today. You do not need to fear Satan. You need to love Christ. Secondly, Christ defends us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Do you understand why verse 2 goes with verse 1? Verse 1 says, Jesus is your lawyer in heaven. That's, what, that's the word. He's your advocate. A lawyer on earth is one who goes to court and stands before the judge and he argues for your best interest. Jesus is your lawyer in heaven standing before God the Father arguing for your best interest. And when an accusation is made by the accuser of our souls, Satan himself, what does Jesus say? He says, I am the propitiation for sins. The word propitiation means satisfaction or payment. He satisfied God's demand that blood be shed to pay for sin. And so when Satan comes along and accuses us, he says, wait a minute, I'm the guy who paid for sin. You got no business here. And I'm the one who says, Father, protect them. Jesus is your lawyer in heaven. One of the reasons you are staying saved, one of the reasons God continues to forgive your sin is because Jesus is there working on your behalf. And for some of you, he's got to work a lot. And sometimes he has to work a lot for me. Thirdly, Christ forgives us. What marvelous truth is this? If we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Part of the reason that you are not going to lose your salvation, part of the reason that God will not cast you out because of your sin is because the blood of Christ continues to forgive your sin. What a great truth is that. Forgiveness was not a, a one-time act that's only for the past. It's one time for the past and the future. Yes, we have a responsibility to confess. And I think I would say with good scriptural merit, if there is sin in your life that you will not confess and you are knowledgeable of it, but you cling to the sin and you will not give it up, then you are not a true Christian. Because if you were the, 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 the ministry of God to convict you of sin would be upon you and you would say, I must confess my sin. Jesus continues to forgive us. I got news for you, friend. You are not up to the task of keeping yourself saved. So God does it for you. God knows that you are made out of dirt it's a verse in the scripture that says that. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are only dust. And so he says, they're not going to be able to keep this up. I'm going to have to do it for them. Now think about this. Why did we come to faith in Christ? Because God reached down and put his hand on you and said, that person's coming to faith. Why do we stay saved? Because God reaches down and puts his hands around you and under you and on top of you. 
As Chuck read this morning, Jesus said, I am in you, Father. We're all in this together, and that's how we're protected. Now, if you've heard these truths before, or if you're hearing them for the first time, you may have some questions. And I've called this third point the sensibility of God and our salvation. And I don't mean to demean God and bring him down to our human level. Quite the contrary. But there are some issues that we think up. We say, well, if God works in people so that they come to faith, then what about those other people? There is a human dilemma for us. And the human dilemma goes like this. How can salvation start in the call of God and yet he holds me responsible to make the commitment of faith. How can God start this great work in me and yet hold me responsible to put faith in him? This is a great question that evangelical Christians have debated since the time of Christ, since this truth was written in the epistles. And some folks have gone all the way over here and said, it is all up to you. You've got to believe in Christ. And you, Christian, have to share with your neighbor because if they go to hell and you haven't shared with them, their blood is on your hands. And some people, which is becoming very popular today, go all the way over here and say salvation is all of God. You don't need to do a thing, Christian. In fact, I know of a church in the county where they don't even preach, you must accept Christ as your Savior. You must put your faith in Christ. You have a responsibility to believe in Jesus. They don't even preach that. To them, it's heresy because it's all of God. Now what does Jesus say? Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. It is not all of mankind. But over here he says, the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Do I know how the will of God and the responsibility of man come together in this? I do not. And do you know why I do not? Because the Bible does not tell us how they come together. Listen to this quote from a man named Leon Morris. Both of these truths receive emphasis, but nowhere, I think, do the Bible writers attempt to bring them together. That is not one of the things that has been revealed. And Christian theologians have, been, have not been conspicuously successful when they try to harmonize them. They usually emphasize one group of passages at the expense of another. I suspect that the problem is too big for our little minds. Now I want to tell you about the little mind that wrote that statement. Leon Morris was a, was a pastor and a theologian and a college president of a Bible college in Australia. In 1931, he got a degree in science, and it was during his first year as a teacher that he converted to Christ and soon was ordained to the ministry. Having qualified as a science teacher, he was required to serve out the five years to the Department of Education. However, while he worked as a teacher, he studied in his spare time for a license in theology, and he topped the Australian College of Theology list. The Archbishop of Sydney paid out his bond to the Department of Education, and he was ordained in 1938. 
1940, under the auspices of the Bush Church Aid Association, he began five years as a priest in charge of a vast mission in the outback of South Australia during World War II. He married a woman named Mildred in 1941 who would drive him back and forth to his church destinations while he studied New Testament Greek in the passenger seat. He continued his private studies, gaining a Bachelor of Divinity from the London University with first-class honors in 1943. Do you understand that he was completely self-taught, but he got a degree from a college because he passed all the tests? And he got the Master of Theology degree in 1946. In 1945, he was invited to the position of Vice Vice Principal of Ridley College in Melbourne. He spent 1950-51 to in Cambridge, gaining his Ph.D., which was later published as The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, a book that became seminal for modern evangelical theology. Leon Morris wrote more than 50 books of theology and biblical commentary that sold nearly two... Two million copies worldwide and have been translated into many languages. And that guy's mind was too small to harmonize these two great truths. And my mind is too small also. So you know what I do? I hang on to the divine sovereignty of God in my salvation. And I hang on to the fact that I have to tell you, you must accept Christ as your Savior. And I'm not going to go all one way or all the other. Because God doesn't go all one way or all the other. He says there is, a, there is an equal thing going on here. So we do not need to try to figure out how this all balances out. We need to hold to the doctrine of God and hold to the responsibility of man. The second question that comes into our, our human sensibility is the human compassion, the question of compassion. Why doesn't God save all people? If God could reach down and save Dave Lunser, why doesn't he save every single person? The only answer I can give you to that is a scriptural answer. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? No, certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. It's God's business, not mine. So then it is not of him who wills, not of the human being, nor of him who gives effort, who runs, but it is of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared among all the earth. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And if you read the story of the Exodus, you will see God hardening his heart, hardening his heart. Because Pharaoh, in his human pride, said, who is this Jehovah God? And so God said, keep right on going, buddy. Keep right on going. I'm going to show you. Which brings us to the reason for everything that goes on, the glory of God. God was shown with Pharaoh to be more powerful than the most powerful man on earth. A man who paraded himself as actually a son of the sun god. God got glory from that. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If God allows somebody to go on in their sin, how can he find fault with them? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, 
Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make a vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? There's a question to ask. Why doesn't God cast every wicked person into hell and get them out of his sight? And that he might make known the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Friends, the correct response to this truth is worship. The question to ask is not, why doesn't God save everyone, but why did God save me? Until you ask that question, you aren't thinking with spiritual eyes. Until you ask that question, you're thinking you're something. God got kind of a good deal. You're really a pretty good person. Until you really see yourself as God sees you, you can't possibly respond to this rightly. It's all of God. It's his choice. It's his business. The glory of God's justice will be shown against sin, and the glory of God's grace will be shown in those of us who have come to faith in Christ. This isn't fair. It would only be fair if God sent everyone to hell. Because that's what we deserve because of our sin What should be the human response to this? The first human response should be evangelism. That is sharing Christ with people. Listen to the words of Jesus himself. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus said, evangelize them all and let God sort them out. God is going to save some people. That's the great truth. That's the great truth that we come to, second of all, is what I've called confidence. God is going to save some people, even in this ungodly hour of our country and of our world, even in this this world where everybody thinks all kinds of things can be true at once that oppose each other, even in that world, we're going to share the gospel and some people are going to come to faith. You should take heart that God is going to work through you. No matter how many people do not believe, God's saving purposes will not be frustrated. Jesus' confidence does not rest in the potential for positive response among well-meaning people. Let me read that again. Jesus' confidence does not rest in the potential for positive response amongst well-meaning people. Far from it. His confidence is in his Father to bring to pass the Father's redemptive purposes. When you're tempted to be discouraged because somebody hasn't come to faith in Christ, number one, it may not be time yet. Number two, you just need to keep sharing the the message, spreading the seed, and God will work. There is a third response, and perhaps the greatest one that I hope you will have today if you're a Christian, and that is a response of worship. How wonderful to know that you can deposit your money in a bank that cannot fail. 
To know that you can invest in a stock that cannot go down. To know that you can build upon a rock that cannot be shaken. In Christ, you have reliability. As you would think about God's calling you to salvation and God's preserving you, it's a wonderful point of worship like this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior who alone is wise. To him be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Or worship comes in a passage like this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. I can only think of one good way to end a sermon like this. Actually, I guess I could think of two good ways. Number one would be that if you have never come to faith in Christ, that you would just say, thank God that he's worked in me. I've been here today. I've heard the truth that Jesus died for my sins and that I just need to put faith in him. And so you would do that. You would say, I'm going to put faith in Christ today. The second response would be from those of us who already know Christ to thank Him and to praise Him. And I can't think of a better way for us to do that as a group than to sing a song together. We're going to sing a song that we have sung many times, but I hope today that as we sing it, you will perhaps grasp the great truth of it in a much deeper way. Let's stand and sing together.